The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Vision Talk Radio with Dr. Bob. If you're interested in keeping your eye health top-notch throughout all of the stages of your life, this is the program to listen to right now. We'll discuss the latest treatments and technologies to help battle vision-related disease, as well as bring you tips and proven methods to keep you seeing well, now and as you age. Here is your host, Dr. Bob Rothbard. Good afternoon. You're on Vision Talk Radio with Dr. Bob. Uh, We have a great guest today. Dr. Dave Sundrowski, an optometrist from the Southern California College of Optometry at Marshall B. Ketchum University. How are you, Dr. Sundrowski? I'm fine, Bob. Pleasure speaking to you this, uh, this afternoon. Good. I tell you, I'm really excited to have you on today because of the fact that I've taken uh, quite a few of your lectures. And not only they're extremely informative, they are very entertaining. Uh, so anyway, you know, I... Got some great uh, questions for you, and because, and what uh, it deals with, and what we'll be dealing with the first half of the show is disease of the eye, viral infections of the eye, and then we're going to be bringing on an ophthalmologist for the second half of the show, Dr. Lusby, out of Envision. So I'm really looking forward to that. But let's start with you, Dr. Sandrowski. Uh, with the recent outbreak of measles, would a patient have ocular signs from the measles? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Bob. You know, it, it, recently in the news, you know, people have been reading about the measles outbreak, and especially with California, because everybody remembers that, uh, you know, in December it started in Disneyland, uh, and then it kind of spread through California, and now we are seeing cases in about 14 to 17 states across the United States. And uh, I teach a course here at the college to our interns, and uh, one of the signs that they used to teach physicians, and I say used to teach physicians because if you read in the news recently, physicians were having a little bit of a hard time diagnosing the disease because they haven't seen the disease in in about a decade. So some of the younger physicians, you know, uh, don't remember that when you basically were trained, and I went through a residency at the VA, that when a patient had measles, especially a young kid, you looked for what we call the three C's. And the three C's were conjunctivitis, and that's the redness in the white part of the eye. Uh, the next one is a cough. And the third one is called, it's a, it's a word called coryza, which is a stuffy nose. If you think if you eat a couple hot peppers, your nose gets kind of stuffed up. Mm-hmm. So when a, when a kid comes in and they have the three C's, you know, you wonder, could they have a viral disease? And, uh, you know, we train them, could be measles. And, and if they start to show any kind of rash that breaks out in their body, um, you could be seeing the first signs of a measles outbreak in your office. Wow. And this is before any type of breakout of any type of uh, marks on the body. Yeah, you actually start to see the conjunctivitis and the cough come before you see the outbreak. The, The classic sign is when you get that macular, it's called a macular papular rash on the skin. It looks like 
little tiny red spots on your skin. You get them in the, the trunk area and the arms and the legs, and, and that's usually just pathognomonic of the disease. But a lot of times, you know, we, we, when I was training, you know, the mom would bring the kid in and, and say, you know, the kid's got a red eye. And you say, well, what else is going on? And you, the kid would say, well, you know, he's got a cough and his nose is kind of stuffy. So you'd think, well, could be sinuses, could be bacterial, could be viral. And then sure enough, you know, you try to just, you can't really treat measles in the eye. All you can really do is what we call palliatively treat the patient, which is, you know, we put the kid on what is just some artificial tears to keep the eye quiet. Sometimes we put them on what we call vasoconstrictors, which makes the eye kind of less red and irritable. And so they don't have that irritation. They're not light sensitive. Um, and they are not as, uh, let's say, um, uh, let's say symptomatic through the eyes as we normally would uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, make them feel a little bit better. Is there any permanent vision problems that can result from measles? I mean, does it ever manifest itself seriously within the eye? I mean, rare occasions? Well, that's a great question. Um, yeah, uh, you don't really see measles. You see measles uh, attacking the front portion of the eye. But keep in mind, the virus can move to the more interior portion of the eye. And so, therefore, we can see damage to what we call the retina. You can see damage to the optic nerve head. Um, you can see damage to what we call the, the choroid, which is the layer just behind the retina. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens here, and it's rare, this is not common, but, but when you see a very, uh, let's say, virulent outbreak of measles, uh, sometimes they can get an ocular, let's say, complication in the back of the eye as well as the front of the eye. Now, the front of the eye cures up pretty easily. You don't have to treat it, and the body does a really good job at, at knocking it out. But let's say that child is some child who has um, uh, an immunosuppressive disease. So let's say you know, they have uh, some sort of blood disorder which causes their immune system to be down. Well, then the virus has a tendency or can have a tendency via the, the blood system to get into the back portion of the eye and affect the, uh, the nerve and the retina, as I mentioned previously. Would you be treating them orally with antivirals if that were the case? Well, uh, you know, at this point, I, I, I don't believe there's any oral antivirals that you, you, know, you can treat a kid with measles. They run through the course and they, they hydrate the kid because a lot of kids, they, they get, let's say, if they're, you know, the, we lose about 100 to, I think it's 150,000 kids in the world from measles a year, um, but those are in undeveloped countries. And mm-hmm. it's usually that you lose them from respiratory distress. Um, and so you have to keep them, you have to keep the fluids going. You have to, if they have to go into the hospital. Um, and I'm, I, you know, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you if there was any particular antiviral that's used for the measles. I think it's basically just the, the natural immune system and the antibodies that attack it uh, that, uh, you know, eradicate the virus from the body. Okay. Well, more importantly, as affects the eyes, of course, Let's discuss some more of the common viruses that do affect or do cause eye infections. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, there's a lot of other viruses besides, you know, just the, the measles virus mm-hmm. that we encounter kind of on a, a let's say, yearly basis. And uh, I know one of the viruses that uh, a lot of practitioners, um, both in optometry as well as ophthalmology, it's one of the reasons why when we walk into the room you see doctors wash their hands. 
Um, we always wash our hands to protect the patient, and then after we see the patient, we wash our hands to protect ourselves because viruses are easily transmitted through just sometimes touching the patient around the eye where they may have some watery secretion like the tears, uh, and sometimes they may have some discharge around the eye in which you know, you're trying to get past and you touch. And then if you don't wash your hands, you can transmit it to yourself. And one of these common viruses is what we call an adenovirus. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's called an adenovirus because basically um, it, it comes from that particular family of viruses. And what it does is it causes the eye to become red. And there's 52 different types. So you can imagine if you made a car, you had 52 variants of that car. Mm-hmm. Um, and some are very severe. Uh, they can cause vision loss um, uh, by secondary complications after the virus, and some are very mild. Uh, you wouldn't even know you had it. Sometimes patients just kind of grind through it. And uh, these adenoviruses are very common in places like um, where you have a lot of people together, and we're right across from Cal State Fullerton, so a lot of times you know, we'll see an outbreak in Cal State Fullerton either from uh, gymnasiums or from dormitories where they, they easily spread the virus back and forth. And then we have these patients come in who have a puffy eyelid, a red irritated eye that's kind of rapid in, in onset. And they easily, viruses easily transmit from one eye to the other. And so because people will rub their eye because it feels red and sure enough, they're not going to wash their hands. And the next thing you know, mm-hmm. boom, it gets into the other eye. And when we see them, um, the adenoviruses, not too, you know, there's not too much out there to treat them with. Um, we basically have a, a new drug that they're looking at. Uh, they're doing some research, Bausch & Lomb. It's called gangcyclovir, um, mm-hmm. and it's, a, it's kind of a, a drug that's been used in the world of treatment for uh, HIV and for infection of the retina, but they're finding that some of these adenoviruses may respond to this antiviral called, called uh, Zirgan or Gangcyclovir. So they're doing some research. Uh, it's out of the United States. I believe it's in uh, South America. They're trying to see whether or not it's good for this particular type of viral infection of the eye, this conjunctivitis. One of the things that, and it especially has popped up, with one of the major universities out here where a lot of the patients contracted a fairly significant or were exposed to a fairly significant bacteria mm-hmm. due to the fact uh, normal cleaning procedures weren't enough. These adenoviruses, doctor, when you are within uh, your office, uh, it must be maintained and fairly sterile. You can spread it among the patients that visit there. Is that correct in, in times? Uh, yes, uh, uh, Bob, that is correct. Uh, one of the things that we always try to train our interns on is the fact that, you know, when a patient does come in with uh, a red eye, you don't know how contagious that red eye can be. And so what we do is we make sure that, besides what I mentioned previously about washing hands, we take uh, very, uh, let's say, uh, aseptic uh, precautions and procedures we put in place to make sure that anything that the patient touches um, and anything that the patient or comes in contact with their eye, we make sure that we either cleanse it with what we call 70 to 90% alcohol. Mm-hmm. We use sometimes a, 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 solve or a solution called hydrogen peroxide, which is very effective. And you can also mix up a solution of one part bleach to 10 parts water, which also is uh, antiviral in nature. 
and then there's commercial brands of antiviral treatments out there. But um, do you remember the uh, swine flu a few years ago uh, mm-hmm. came out? Well, as it was kind of interesting because we were we were um, uh, at a lecture, and I remember one of the doctors saying that you actually, and that that became so contagious that you know they were warning doctors to wash the top of the magazines that they had in their waiting room and make sure that they wiped down the uh, you know any patients who were there because some viruses and and adenovirus is one of them where a patient can touch a surface and the virus can stay there as viable, meaning it can be transmitted to somebody else up to, say, several days. Um, so you have to be careful on these things. We see sometimes outbreaks in certain areas, and, and this is one of the diseases that we don't have to report to the CDC, but certainly um, it's encouraged that if you see several of these cases, to call the centers of disease control, just like, you know, the outbreak of the measles, and say, I'm seeing this adenovirus. And one of the famous ones is called epidemic keratoconjunctivitis, or what we call EKC. And that's one of the ones that has the 52 different types, and it can be, like I said, either very virulent or very mild. Mm-hmm. Well, Doctor, we're coming up against break right now. Uh, I'd like to go into other types of viral infections, including shingles, when we come back, okay. and we'll be discussing some of the treatments of it. You're on Vision Talk Radio with Dr. Bob. We'll be back. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. If you are in Southern California, visit Rancho Cucamonga Optometric Center. Dr. Bob started his practice more than 25 years ago, providing high-quality vision care to his patients. Some of our patients and their families have been coming to us since the very beginning. Visit our website at RanchoEyeDoctor.com. There you can click on the Testimonials tab, Video tab, and Blog tab. If Dr. Bob feels that the care a patient needs is beyond his scope of practice or knowledge, he can refer these patients to specialists to make sure the patient is receiving the best care possible. Rancho Cucamonga Optometric Center is part of the local chambers of commerce in Rancho Cucamonga, Upland, and Ontario, California. Our wonderful staff is very knowledgeable and friendly. We welcome most vision care plans and can help you find your vision plan if you're unsure about your coverage. We'd love to have you come in. Visit RanchoEyeDoctor.com or if you're in Southern California, call us at 909-980-3535. Rancho Cucamonga Optometric Center, 909-980-3535 or RanchoEyeDoctor.com. How is your health? Do you want to know more about it? Every day there are new technologies, procedures, and healing techniques coming forward. To understand them, tune in to Speaking of Health with Dr. Michael Cudlis. Our guests come from different backgrounds in the fields of health and healing. We'll discuss new realities and modalities, from chiropractic to metagenics. It's all designed to improve your quality of life. Speaking of Health is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Vision Talk Radio with Dr. Bob Rothbard. To reach our show, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. 
That's 1-866-472-5792. Or you can send an email to Rancho Optometric at Verizon.net. Now, back to this week's edition of Vision Talk Radio. You're back with Dr. Bob. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Sandrowski of Southern California College of Optometry at the Marshall B. Ketchum University. I have a question. I had a patient in the other day, uh, actually it was about three or four days ago, in utter pain. Tremendous. Tearing, eyes were a little bit red. And as it turned out, I mean, I wound up referring because I wasn't quite sure what the etiology was. And I asked him one of the questions. I said, where do you get this from, you think? And he wasn't a contact lens wearer. His eyes weren't scratched. But he was in the hospital the day before visiting a friend. And could this have, could he have caught that there? Apparently, I think he did. And why so much pain? Well, you know, uh, uh Bob, uh, one of the things that uh, can certainly cause pain is viruses, and uh, one of the more common viruses that uh, doctors run across, especially eye doctors, is what we call the herpes virus. Um, It's called herpes simplex, um, and there's two types to it. Uh, Usually type 1 is the more common one that eye doctors come across, and type 2 is the one that, uh, let's say, internal medicine doctors come across because it affects the, the human genitalia. Um, on the type 1, what happens is the virus, we contract. As a matter of fact, about three-quarters of the population in the United States has probably antibodies floating around for what we call herpes simplex. We get them from our parents. We get them from our relatives because they have things called cold sores. Uh, they have little things in their mouth, and so therefore they spread the virus, and we pick it up, and we pick it up, and, and we don't even know uh, 80% of the time that we get it. Uh, it just gets into our system and lies in these little sensory areas around the eye uh, for type 1, and they're called sensory ganglia. And if you imagine like an octopus with all these little uh, tentacles coming out, uh, when a virus reactivates, it can really stimulate that nerve ending. And to kind of put in, if anybody on your radio show knows of somebody who's had shingles, uh, they mm-hmm. can tell you how much pain that they're in, especially if they get it on their chest or on the side of their face. And that's because what happens is that nerve gets overstimulated and, and patients are in a lot of pain. And uh, one, of the, one of the interesting things is um, there's a new test out there that doctors can perform in their office to diagnose herpes when we don't see it. Sometimes we see a very classic sign of herpes simplex. And so we, the patient comes in as the patient came into your office and they'll say, you know, Dr. Bob, I got a problem with my eye. It's kind of light sensitive. And you, I'm sure, have seen it many times where you put a couple stains on the eye and then there's this classic pattern that happens on the front of the eye and we diagnose herpes simplex. Right. In some cases, like you mentioned, uh, the doctor's perplexed because we don't know, you know, what's going on. So, there's a test called RPS. It's called Rapid uh, Pathogen Screening. And doctors can get this and perform it in the office where you just you take a little bit of the, the tear water, or what we call the tear film, you put it on this little piece of paper, and then it reacts with uh, what we call a, um, a reagent. And if it comes up, we know that you basically have what is considered herpes simplex. Wow. Uh, how... How new is that test, doctor? I'm sorry, what's that? How new is the test? When was it developed? 
Uh, well, how long is- RPS was probably developed about four years ago or five years ago, and it's an in-office test, um, and it basically it's a it's a it's a main test, and and I have to correct myself, uh, uh, and, and I, I I'm, I'm sorry because I might have given your audience a little bit of misnomer there, but the test goes after that first virus, that adenovirus, um, mm-hmm. and it and if it's positive, we know it's an adenovirus, but occasionally. The reason I said uh, simplex is I've had similar cases as you have. The test will come up negative. And another thing that you have to consider is that herpes simplex, which potentially could be causing that to come up negative. But it's been out about, uh, say, four or five years. It's called the RPS uh, adenoreceptor. And it's a, it's a test that uh, doctors can run in their office uh, if they have a what we call a CLIA waiver, meaning they can run a test in their office and bill your health care insurance. They can run it, uh, tell you right then and there whether you have the virus uh, or not. And then uh, if not, then some doctors just do it and, and basically charge the patient for running the test. Okay. And, you know, you alluded to it just a couple of seconds ago. Uh, let's discuss shingles a little bit. What type of patient uh, gets shingles? Well, the, the common patient who gets uh, shingles, and, and I'm sure a lot of your audience um, have you know, patients who are 60 years old and older, and we always uh, kind of instruct our interns to always look out for patients who are 55 years and older because what happens is they have a tendency to have a history of, of getting chickenpox. And about half the patients remember getting chickenpox. The other half of the patients, well, they probably got them when they were so young they don't have any memory of it. But what happens is that chickenpox is called varicella, or varicella, uh, and we see it as a varicella zoster virus, um, has a tendency to reactivate. So it stays with you your entire life. As you get older, you have less and less antibodies to fight it, and so then it kind of springs itself out. And, and uh, one of the things that you know, we encourage patients over the age of 60 is if they go to their doctor, either internal medicine or doctors who can give a vaccine, there's a vaccine out there called Zostavax. And uh, Zostavax can be given, which kind of builds up your immune system. And when they were doing the studies on this, um, they actually found that two things happened. Is One, they had about two-thirds of the patient who didn't get that pain that you were describing earlier. Right. So you know that, that very bad eye pain, that very bad pain that they get on the chest? They found that patients had less of a chance of getting that what we call post-herpetic neuralgia. And then the other thing is that uh, they found that they got less recurrences of the cases. And so, and when they did get it, they got it to a lesser degree. So uh, I know the CDC, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, also doctors would recommend that anybody over the age of 60 who um, hasn't been vaccinated should get vaccinated for uh, uh, Zoster. And they now give it to kids. Uh, there's a different variance of that that's given to children when they're in preschool and, and school, that has a ten, or that basically will protect the kid against uh, chickenpox. Okay, and uh, can these infections, especially with the shingles, could they be site-threatening for the patient? Oh yes, um, any patient. I mean, the, any patient who gets a, a, a what we call a herpes zoster on the side of the face. So, for example, and and you can you can basically tell. It looks like. Um, uh, and I'm sure your audience knows that uh, the, you, you, what, uh, let's say, poison ivy looks like on the skin. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how it starts on the, on the uh, chest and on the side of the face. It, these little clear bubbles have a tendency to show up, usually on the forehead area next to the eye. 
And what happens is, as these bubbles show up, they're called vesicles. And um, these vesicles have a tendency to kind of be a precursor to the, the zoster when it gets near the eye. The zoster can easily go down what we call the, a specific nerve called the trigeminal nerve. It's the fifth cranial nerve in the, in the upper portion of the head. And, and basically what happens is, um, as it comes down there, it can cause associated inflammation inside the eye, which can cause damage. Um, and there's a particular type of inflammation called uveitis that we have to watch out for. There's also, because of the inflammation, we can also get a secondary glaucoma. And so when patients get zoster around the eye, um, it's very important that they see their eye doctor because we need to look out for things like uh, glaucoma that's occurring on that side, um, any kind of inflammation, because we can treat these uh, very rapidly once we start to, uh, uh, once we diagnose them. And what can the patients do to prevent these infections from occurring? Well, in the, in the, what they can do for protection is uh, get a, get, if you haven't been vaccinated for uh, zoster, chickenpox, and you're over the age of uh, 60, uh, talk to your doctor about getting the vaccinations. Uh, and uh, basically, as far as the simplex, there's really nothing you can do in that particular area because they have a tendency to come out when the body is stressed, and it can be stress mm-hmm. from uh, fatigue, uh, any kind of stress, worry, uh, too much exposure to sunlight is a classic one, so too much UV exposure. You see a lot of people who get fever blisters when they go to the beach or they go skiing. Um, and when these things come up, they're associated with simplex, not the zoster, but the simplex type. And so that's one of the questions we ask patients. When you get a pain in your eye or you have a redness in your eye, do you, have you recently had a fever blister? Have you recently had any kind of, let's say, blisters inside your mouth? Because sometimes, again... That's where commonly the simplex shows up. Now, the nice thing about simplex is it's treatable. So, so what we can do is, uh, as doctors, we can prescribe the patient a topical antiviral medication, mm-hmm. and that antivirus will have a tendency to speed up the, uh, let's say, healing of the eye and eradicate the virus from the eye once we put the patient on the medication. And once the uh, eye is treated, can the herpes come back? Well, yes, it can, uh, because what happens is uh, viruses like zoster and like simplex, what happens is they have that a characteristic of being able to go what we call dormant. So uh, they're kind of like the, uh, <laughs> you'll have to excuse the expression, but they're kind of like a vampire that goes <laughs> to sleep during the day and then wakes up at night. Well, this vampire uh, has a tendency to go to sleep for sometimes years, um, and then it comes up when a patient is, again, has any kind of, uh, let's say, stress to their immune system or they have any kind of, let's say, uh, overexposure to ultraviolet light or, or certain what we call trigger factors. Talking about a trigger factor, this is when I first started practicing way back when. A uh, patient apparently had, looked like a, might have had a, well, had a history of herpes and I put a contact lens in there and within a minute or two, it's like the whole eye like, became so clouded over and uh, it almost looked as if the pupil were out around, not due to the fact that it was, but due to the uh, ocular optics occurring. So I find that very interesting. And I told that person probably never can wear contacts again. And have you seen where a contact lens with a person who's had a history of herpes uh, could exacerbate the situation and make it come back? 
Oh, uh, absolutely. You know, contact lens wear for patients who have herpes, um, they have to be very careful. Under a good guidance from an eye doctor, um, they can wear contact lenses, but they can't what we would call, say, abuse contact lenses. And what mm-hmm. abuse means is that you sleep in your contact lens, you don't take care of your contact lens, and so what happens is you can then irritate the front portion of the eye, and if, you're in the, if the conditions are, are, are right, uh, you can get a, attack a herpes simplex. And so you should always tell your eye doctor if you've ever had a red eye or any doctor in the past has ever told you that you had herpes simplex because you can definitely, you know, you, the doctor will take precautions and tell you to watch for signs of a reoccurrence and so you need to get in there, especially contact lens wearers. There are people who, when you put a contact lens on, sometimes they won't even feel it. It's like little Band-Aids. So they'll get a bad infection, but the contact lens prevents the patient from knowing they have the infection. And as you said, the more you have these infections or breakouts of herpes, the less sensitive you are to actual, less sensitivity the cornea has, correct? Yeah. Uh, when, when a virus continually, let's say, reactivates a nerve, it can actually deaden that nerve so the patient becomes less sensitive. Sometimes when they first get it, they, they get hypersensitive, but over time they can get very less sensitive. So it's kind of like someone who may have lost feeling in the tip of their fingers from an injury. They just can't feel with that tip of their finger as, they can, as well as they can with their other fingers. Well, great. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, Dr. Sandrowski. It's very informative and, of course, very quick. We're going to be on with Dr. Franklin Lesby. After the break, discussing refractive surgery. You're on Vision Talk Radio with Dr. Bob. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you or does somebody you know face an ongoing battle with addiction? Our nation's drug problem is getting worse as we spend billions on the judicial system. It's time to fight the demand for drugs and not the supply. Listen for I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen, who has experienced both IV heroin addiction and recovery and is now here to both help and educate you with his story and engaging guests. There are great resources available for recovery, and there is hope. Tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you are in Southern California, visit Rancho Cucamonga Optometric Center. Dr. Bob started his practice more than 25 years ago, providing high-quality vision care to his patients. Some of our patients and their families have been coming to us since the very beginning. Visit our website at RanchoEyeDoctor.com. There you can click on the Testimonials tab, Video tab, and Blog tab. If Dr. Bob feels that the care a patient needs is beyond his scope of practice or knowledge, he can refer these patients to specialists to make sure the patient is receiving the best care possible. Rancho Cucamonga Optometric Center is part of the local chambers of commerce in Rancho Cucamonga, Upland, and Ontario, California. Our wonderful staff is very knowledgeable and friendly. We welcome most vision care plans and can help you find your vision plan if you're unsure about your coverage. We'd love to have you come in. Visit RanchoEyeDoctor.com or if you're in Southern California, call us at 909-980-3535. Rancho Cucamonga Optometric Center, 909-980-3535 or RanchoEyeDoctor.com. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. listening to Vision Talk Radio with Dr. Bob Rothbard. To reach our show, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or you can send an email to ranchooptometric at verizon.net. Now, back to this week's edition of Vision Talk Radio. Okay, you're back with Dr. Bob. On our second half of the show, we have Dr. Franklin Lusby, an ophthalmologist, a surgeon uh, whose specialty is refractive surgery. He's with N Vision in both Fullerton and Torrance, California. How are you, Dr. Lusby? I'm great, Bob. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, I heard the term refractive surgery, and this is mostly for our listeners. Uh, What exactly is refractive surgery? Well, Refractive surgery, well, number one, it didn't exist when I was a resident, so everything I've learned about it, I've learned kind of in the real world. Uh, But refractive surgery is any operation on the eye with the primary intent of getting rid of glasses or contact lenses. And, you know, the earliest version of that came to this country in the mid-1980s in the form of an operation called RK, which was developed in the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, and since then, you know, the field has progressed rather dramatically to what we currently offer today, uh, which we kind of colloquially call uh, all-laser LASIK surgery. And it was really interesting. Somebody said that when they first developed the RK in Russia, that it was quite by accident. Somebody was in an accident and had gone through the windshield, and it actually it was actually able to see better because of the cutting of the cornea. I'm yeah, not sure whether that... The, the the legend that I heard was that, um, yeah, it was something exactly like that, and they found out that he could actually see better without his glasses after the accident than before, and then they kind of got to looking at, you know, what might have happened, and, you know, in, in retrospect, it had to be a change in the shape of the cornea that took place, and then it was just a matter of figuring out a way to systematically titrate that so you could then predict how the uh, change on the cornea would take place. Uh, doctor, how does refractive surgery work? Well, you know, what we really have to do, the, you know, the, the eye has two lenses. There's the one internal called the lens, and then the front lens is actually the cornea. It's the clear layer that's in front of the color part of somebody's eye when you look at their eye, or it's where a contact lens would ride. And what we do in most refractive surgery these days is we do something to change the shape uh, and thereby change the optical power of that front lens, the cornea. Uh, and if we change it just right, we will make it so that the light rays coming through the eye will now focus clearly on the back of the eye. And that thereby eliminates, eliminates what we call either the refractive error or the prescription. Mm-hmm. And where does the laser come in with all of this? Well, the, the beauty of the laser, and, and you know, the laser that's, that's the big player in uh, refractive surgery is called an eczema laser. And it was originally developed to uh, cut circuit boards for IBM back in the (laughs) 60s and 70s, but uh, it's been refined a little bit to do what we do with it. In any case, 
it has the ability to, uh, when it strikes the cornea, vaporize away a very precise amount of corneal tissue. And so you can imagine if you control this uh, sufficiently with a laser, you can take an existing shape of the cornea and say, okay, I want to change it from this to that. So here I have to remove this and here I have to remove that. At the end of the day, you end up with the correct shape on the cornea uh, compared to what you started out with. And doctor, what is the most common form of refractive surgery? Well, what we do mostly nowadays is LASIK. Probably, uh, probably that's 94, 95% of the cases that I do. The other 4 or 5% is uh, PRK, which is like LASIK with no flap. And then there's a smaller number of other types of refractive surgery that don't really involve the cornea so much, but mm-hmm. um, more likely the lens of the eye or adding lenses to the eye or other things that are uh, considerably less common than, than LASIK. And uh, I'm just remarking, because I graduated in 81, so we saw the cases with the refractive surgery with the RK, and we've seen, of course, the uh, LASIK come about and the all-laser LASIK come about, and it's just amazing the results that we're getting uh, for these patients. And are there patients who are limited in... uh, if they can actually get LASIK or not, is there a limitation? Yeah, there, there are some people that, that shouldn't have LASIK and probably shouldn't have any eye surgery at all. I mean, certainly the, the ideal patient that I see doesn't have any ocular diseases or injuries or abnormalities or whatever. And, you know, back in the RK days, the, you know, the amount of testing that was available to do on somebody's eye at that time was fairly limited. Mm-hmm. You know, we could, we could measure the thickness. We could get a general idea of the shape of the eye. We could certainly measure the prescription. But there were a lot of subtleties that we've since learned that we were unable to see uh, in those days. Uh, and so, you know, whereas, you know, RK has progressed over the years to what we currently have as our current forms of uh, eczema laser treatment, and there's been a lot of development on that treatment side involving the lasers. There's also been a lot of development on the diagnostic side. So we're uh, more accurately able to determine if somebody is going to be a good candidate and respond predictably to the surgery. You know, we've all seen people that had something done back in the day and they had kind of an unusual outcome. And, you know, our, our number one goal nowadays is to avoid that sort of thing. And uh, I think we're quite able to do that with our current uh, diagnostic tools. And certainly, I think if we'd had the opportunity to see some of those patients that maybe had an unusual outcome and look at them with today's technology, we might have concluded that, you know, you should probably just stick with your glasses or contacts. Uh, so there have been really, really good developments in, in, on both the treatment side and the uh, diagnostic side. You know, I'll, I'll see patients every now and then who had LASIK back in the mid to late 90s, and right. they've maybe regressed a little bit, or, you know, they've got other things going on, and, and uh, we'll often get into the discussion of, well, what's different now compared to when I originally had my surgery? And, you know, the two main things are uh, the manner in which the lasers reshape the cornea, meaning the, the algorithm that's used or the computerized instructions to tell the laser, what exactly to do to the cornea. That's become 
much more sophisticated. The treatment zones are a little bit larger. That leads to fewer side effects, better quality of vision, better vision in dim light, and uh, generally more stability long term. Uh, then about 10 years ago or so, uh, the Femto second laser was developed for creating the flap in LASIK surgery. That's the first step in the procedure. And prior to that, we used to use a device called a microkeratome, which is a, I'm sure you recall seeing patients with this, um, you know, a motorized device with a motor and a blade that would kind of shoot across the cornea and actually cut a flap. And as you can well imagine, we never talked about the details of that very much with people because they would tend to cringe like probably most of your listeners just then. But in any case, once uh, the femtosecond laser came out and became widely available, then uh, we could pretty much shift over to making the flap with a femto laser. Uh, that's uh, F-E-M-T-O, femtosecond is, uh, well, it refers to the duration of the pulse of the, of the laser and it's like 10 to the minus uh, 15 seconds, so it doesn't, doesn't take long. But anyhow, um, the, the femtosecond laser uh, basically makes a more uniform flap and has a much better safety profile than uh, other previous methods for making the flap. And the recovery with a lot of these uh, surgeries, that's phenomenal, especially with LASIK. PRK obviously uh, is a little more involved, which is not with a flap. But I get these patients in my office, uh, I do the follow-up, of course, I don't do the surgery, uh, and we're seeing 2020 real easily, if not better, as yeah, far yeah, as that's I, concerned. You know, like I tell my patients, I say, well, this is why I've quit doing pretty much everything else and just do this. I mean, the, the, the results and the patient satisfaction are just really phenomenal. And, um, you know, on... Very often, as soon as people sit up from the laser, they'll be able to tell that we've done something significant. They may still be a little blurry at that point, but every now and then we'll have somebody who sees pretty clearly as soon as they sit up. And, you know, it, it, it sounds like an infomercial on TV. Oh, my gosh, I can see, you know, that type of thing. But, but by and large, uh, by the next morning, and usually we're talking, you know, 12, 16 hours later, there's enough healing that's taken place that the flap is firmly in place. The surface of the cornea looks pretty good. And uh, very often, as you've observed, they'll have 2020, maybe even better the next morning. It has really been a revolution for these patients, especially, and I've had to do a follow-up on some of these individuals who become pilots for the Air Force, and they're minus six. That means they can't see much further than about uh, 10 inches, 15 inches, clearly anymore, and way out and any distance beyond that is uh, forget about it. Uh, right. It's unbelievable. I mean, I had to do the follow-up with this once a month with a dilated refract, uh, refraction, uh, cycloplegic refraction. And the results were just phenomenal. There's one individual in particular. But, Doctor, one of the things I want to conclude with, and we'll be coming up against break right now, is new uh, techniques dealing with individuals who have keratoconus. And I think that would be, uh, this is a good place to take a break right now. And we'll come back to it and probably devote the rest of the show to the uh, research that's being done with it, the new uh, techniques that are being done, and the hopeful good outcome that these patients can accept or expect, rather. You're back on Vision Talk Radio with Dr. Bob. We'll be back in a few minutes. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. How many times have you heard this? I'm sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. You are what you eat. I've tried every diet. Diets don't work. It's time to stop this kind of madness and start thinking and feeling empowered to change your health. Tune in to The Raw Truth with Chef Sharon Fraser. Join us weekly for thought-provoking conversations with world-renowned experts in the food, medical, holistic, sports medicine, chiropractic, and naturopathic health sciences. The Raw Truth airs live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. If you are in Southern California, visit Rancho Cucamonga Optometric Center. Dr. Bob started his practice more than 25 years ago, providing high-quality vision care to his patients. Some of our patients and their families have been coming to us since the very beginning. Visit our website at RanchoEyeDoctor.com. There you can click on the Testimonials tab, Video tab, and Blog tab. If Dr. Bob feels that the care a patient needs is beyond his scope of practice or knowledge, he can refer these patients to specialists to make sure the patient is receiving the best care possible. Rancho Cucamonga Optometric Center is part of the local chambers of commerce in Rancho Cucamonga, Upland, and Ontario, California. Our wonderful staff is very knowledgeable and friendly. We welcome most vision care plans and can help you find your vision plan if you're unsure about your coverage. We'd love to have you come in. Visit RanchoEyeDoctor.com or if you're in Southern California, call us at 909-980-3535. Rancho Cucamonga Optometric Center, 909-980-3535 or RanchoEyeDoctor.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Vision Talk Radio with Dr. Bob Rothbard. To reach our show, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or you can send an email to ranchooptometric at verizon.net. Now, back to this week's edition of Vision Talk Radio. We're on with Dr. Franklin Lusby. This is Dr. Bob. And we're going to discuss a topic which is pretty important, especially for those patients who actually have it. And that's a condition called keratoconus. Doctor, can you describe that and describe what's being done and the treatments that are being developed for this condition? Sure. Um, You know, I I spend a lot of part of my day looking at the shape of the cornea on many, many different people, so this comes up not infrequently. But keratoconus is a condition that is often first diagnosed in uh, early adulthood or adolescence, and what it is is a collagen defect in the cornea. The cornea is made up of layers of collagen fibers, and the defect results in an unstable shape of the cornea in such that the cornea becomes progressively thin and steep or cone-like shaped, often in the middle of the cornea or even off-center a little bit. And as you can imagine, 
remember the cornea is the front lens of your eye. Well, once mm-hmm. it starts to undergo that shape, then the optics of the eye are not very good at all. And so, you know, this is, this is probably the most common uh, progressive uh, corneal um, structural abnormality based on a collagen defect. Um, and the initial treatment, you know, once you've made the diagnosis, the additional treatment is to kind of observe the patient, keep them seen as well as you can for as long as possible. And these patients will usually go through a progression of glasses to contacts to torque contacts to rigid gas permeable lenses to be able to maintain good vision. And then at least, you know, prior to maybe five or six years ago, the natural progression was that if once they got to the point where they couldn't wear their hard contact lenses anymore, meaning that their cornea was so steep and irregular, a contact lens wouldn't stay on it, then they became a a candidate for a corneal transplant. This is where you remove the full thickness of the cornea for about the central maybe two-thirds, and then you sew in a matching piece of tissue from a donor cornea. Uh, and as surgery in my line of work goes, that's a pretty big operation, takes a long recovery. It was generally quite uh, successful, but it was a good thing to avoid if there's any way you could avoid it. So in probably around about the 1990s, actually in Dresden, Germany, uh, some pretty sharp cookies figured out that you could stabilize the cornea and actually make it rigid by doing a certain type of chemical treatment to it. And when I first heard this, it sounded kind of ridiculous, but it actually works and, and it's, it's, we do it relatively commonly today. But basically what you do is uh, you need to saturate the cornea with uh, vitamin B2, which is riboflavin. Mm-hmm. This is an intensely kind of yellowish uh, substance. And once this is soaked into the cornea, you then uh, irradiate it or shine a very special ultraviolet light uh, on the cornea where this uh, riboflavin has been absorbed. And what that will do is it actually creates uh, free radicals in the cornea. You know, I, I thought free radicals was a, was a student group at Berkeley, but these are actually little atomic you know, particles. But these free radicals will then stimulate a chemical reaction in the cornea that links all these little collagen layers together uh, with the intent to arrest the progressive thinning and steepening of the cornea that usually leads somebody to needing a corneal transplant. That's tremendous. Is it painful at all? The treatment itself is really not very painful. The recovery, uh, they're usually a little scratchy for four or five days. Uh, they'll have a contact lens on to help them heal after the procedure. Um, but by about five days, they feel okay. And before too long, their vision gets kind of back to where they started. And then over the next maybe three to six months, we'll watch some progression and usually a little improvement in the shape of the cornea. Now, you know, I explained to my patients that the main reason for doing this procedure is to arrest the progression of the disease and hopefully prevent a corneal transplant. And in the vast majority of the cases, we get that, so I consider that alone a big success. But most of the time, we get some other little side improvements. In other words, the vision without glasses or contacts will be a little bit better. The vision with glasses or contacts will be a little bit better. Uh, The steepness of the cornea will flatten out a little bit. 
Uh, and uh, so most people will pick up a little improvement in either their ability to wear contacts uh, or their ability to see or both. Doctor, when you do this, are you able to measure, is there any additional thickening of the cornea as a result of this? Well, the, per- the, the procedure actually makes the cornea a little thinner at first, which can kind mm-hmm. of rattle your cage a little because these corneas are generally a little thin to begin with. And we have to make sure that the cornea is at the proper thickness before we get to the step where the ultraviolet light is applied. And uh, depending on the type of riboflavin you use, you can get it dissolved in different types of uh, vehicles. Uh, Some will make the cornea a little thinner. Some will make it a little bit thicker. So this is something we monitor carefully during the procedure, and we do have the ability to adjust so that when we get to the ultraviolet light step, everything's the way it should be. And how available is the cross-linking? Well, uh, the the cross-linking procedure in the United States is not yet FDA-approved. There's one company that has a study intended to lead to FDA approval, and we think maybe next year they'll have their preliminary approval from the FDA. In the meantime, it is available at our centers and several others around the country Uh, And this is done under a private study. So the way it works with the FDA is you can do procedures that are not FDA approved, but they have to be done under what's called an IRB or a study overseen by an IRB. And the IRB is an institutional review board, which is a group of scientists and doctors and medical ethics type uh, usually associated with a university or medical school or university hospital. In, in, uh, in our centers, it's a private study done through a private IRB, and we have criteria for who we can treat and who we can't. And uh, in my experience, it's been really quite successful for, uh, for the patients. Okay, and one last thing. Again, uh, how many patients are seeking care for uh, not being able to read at 40, 45 in the perfect distance? Oh, you're talking about my problem. I see fine a distance, yep. I can't see up close. You've yeah, got about a minute left for that or two. Yeah, that's a, that's a growing, well, it, it's, the, it's basically the baby boomer and slightly before the baby boomer uh, problem, and it's, it's very prevalent. And, you know, I think in my line of work, the holy grail will be something that really works well for that. There's a lot of stuff uh, being researched right now for uh, little implants you can put in the cornea to improve the reading vision. Sometimes mm-hmm. we make one eye distance, one eye near, and that works well for some people. We have a good way to test that ahead of time before we. Oh, sure we do. It. Yeah, but uh, unfortunately, there's nothing really on the horizon that's going to make us all like we're 20 years old again, as far as being able to see up close. But uh, well, you know, you can always hope. We can, and I want to thank you, Dr. Lesby, for being on the show with us, and Dr. Sandrowski, uh on the first half of the show. It was really great having you guys here. Next week. We will be having Dr. Beth Ballinger of Newport Beach, California, who is really a tremendous individual when it comes to talking about vision, developmental vision, vision training, dealing with all sorts of patients of all ages from Downs to attention deficit to autism. It promises to be a really good show. So you're on Vision Talk Radio with Dr. Bob, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Vision Talk Radio with Dr. Bob. We'll be back next Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.